Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, this is FEPS Talks. My name is Lance London. I'm the Secretary General of FEPS, the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. And um, today I'm in London with Anne Pettifor, who is a British economist and probably very well known for her prediction. Uh, some time ago when nobody expected a great financial crisis, but she was already writing about that. But in reality, we know each other from the 1990s when she worked on Jubilee 2000, <laughs> campaigning for debt relief uh, for developing uh, countries. And most recently, she published a book under the title the case for the Green New Deal. And this book has already been published um, on about half a dozen uh, languages. I'm, I'm sure this is going to continue. Uh, can I start with a question about the expression Green New Deal? Yeah. Is this a British or an American idea? So the idea of the Green New Deal is a British idea. But of course, it's based in the first instance on Roosevelt's New Deal. And I want to point out why that is so important and relevant to it. But back in 2008, a group of economists and environmentalists gathered here in London. And we, at the height of the financial crisis, and in fact, before uh, the implosion of Lehman Brothers. And we realized that what had, we had an opportunity of the crisis to both transform the well, to transform the financial system in order to transform the ecosystem. We were very clear that actually it was the financial and the economic system which was at the root of the rise in greenhouse gas emissions and that if you wanted to address the ecological crisis, you had to deal yeah. with the economic crisis. And of course, you know, the Greens were focusing on the ecological crisis and we economists were focusing on the economic crisis and this group said, no, these two issues are really deeply integrated and both sides have to understand it. So that was 2008. And that idea got picked up, particularly in Germany, for example, by the Greens, mm -hmm. by the American Greens, um, by the UN. Um, I remember it popping up in South Korea, but actually it never had much impact, really. And then back uh, about 18 months ago in February 2018, I was visited by the, a group of known as the Justice Democrats, and they were preparing to put up a candidate in New York for the primaries, for the congressional elections. And they were concerned to, to have, an, have a policy, an economic policy that would help her um, win the election. And out of that discussion came the Green New Deal. And I worked mm. with them in preparing her manifesto. And I spoke with her as she prepared to go to the electorate. Well, of course, she then won. And of course, this being the United States of America, she very soon went to the, to the, to the House, to the House, the Congressional, to meet up with her colleagues in Congress. And there was a group called the Sunrise Movement. And they're a group of environmentalists and mm. young people. And together, they just, you know, ratcheted this issue into the stratosphere, if you like, they made it very popular. And of course, it is now adopted by Bernie Sanders. So now, because of the power of the United States in our world, it is it has become a global issue. Um, but I want to come back to whether or not it's uh, British or American, because, I mean, I think we, we, we had the idea of linking these two things. Mm -hmm. And um, But it's based on 
Roosevelt and New Deal. And uh, the thing that I find inspiring about that was that Roosevelt, on the night of his inauguration, and this is not well known, you know, Roosevelt is often defined as a tax and spender, as that someone who actually used fiscal policy. It wasn't really the case. And that wasn't the case. On the night of his inauguration, he went back to the White House and he said to his staff, effectively, we are bailing out of the gold standard. And mm -hmm. uh, they said, well, yeah, you're going to have to wait until Monday because tomorrow's a, a holy day. Uh, you can't do it straight away. Wait until Monday. They worked through the night on the Sunday night and then they closed the banks on the Monday. But they demanded that Wall Street and indeed all American citizens hand over their gold and that in future Wall Street was not going to be in the driving seat of the economy. The administration, the elected government was going to be in the driving seat of the economy and in particular in relation to the value of the dollar. And the reason this matters was that Roosevelt was confronted by two crises. First, a high level of unemployment, the, you know, catastrophic levels of unemployment in the United States at the time, but also the catastrophic climate crisis they faced, yes. which was known as the Dust Bowl, which had, you know, destroyed effectively the land of whole swathes of the United States. And so, so he began a program of, you know, planting trees and the speculation or the, 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 the numbers are that they planted about three billion trees. <laughs> he formed these uh, conservation groups for restoring health to the soil. And so the relevance of what Roosevelt did in monetary terms, as well as ecological mm -hmm. terms, is why this is such a relevant uh, framing of the issue of the Green New Deal. So connecting a progressive economic policy with social policy and environmental sustainability in yeah. itself is not entirely new. No. But because of the climate crisis, it has to appear now in an entirely new program. Yeah. And it starts with reforming finance. Yes. As you highlight in this book. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, we, we've heard that BlackRock is beginning to say that it will disinvest in coal. Um, but the fact of the matter is, you know, that until quite recently we had our savings as individuals and firms put our savings in, in the local bank, in the high street banks. And now our savings have migrated into something called the stratosphere, the financial stratosphere. Mm. And they're managed by private companies like BlackRock, which manages something like $7 trillion of financial, of, uh, of financial assets. And, um, and so it's beyond the control, if you like. It's beyond the influence and the regulation of our governments but also beyond our own. So we don't know what's happening to our savings. Mm -hmm. and, and so, but, but what we do know is that in the three years since the Paris Club Agreement, and the Rainforest Network has, has pulled this out, in the three years since the Paris Club Agreement, a bank like J.P. Morgan Chase has invested $196 billion in the fossil fuel sector. Um, by contrast, Exxon invested only $3 billion a year over those three years, $9 billion in the fossil fuel sector. So, so we see that, that the banks here play a really important role in the sense that they, they have a, a host pipe of money, if you like, which they aim at fossil fuels um, because, of, the, of course, that's immensely profitable. And until we get manage and regulate those financial institutions, 
it is really not going to be any point in trying to re regulate the coal mines and so on and so forth. So we try to make the connection. We say that that connection is incredibly important. Mm. Um, we can't just focus on one side of this equation. Right. When you say the banks, we yeah. mean the private banks. We mean the private banks and other financial institutions. These are called asset management funds, and they, effect, they act effectively as banks in what is known as the shadow banking yes. sector. They're not on our high streets, but out there in the shadow banking sector, they are creating new credit. They are making loans. They are uh, intermediating. Um, they are using our savings, if you like, to collateralize those into assets and then use that as leverage for uh, leveraging additional borrowing. So they're doing everything out there uh, which uh, reflects what was done on the high street in the past. Uh, but the difference is that they're operating in the shadows, if you like, whereas the high streets, mm. banks even today are still more regulated than they were before. Yes. Any proposal I'm familiar with um, puts in the center of the strategy to reform finance the public banks, the public investment banks yeah. in Europe, primarily the European Investment Bank. But yeah. Most of the uh, proposals come forward with... Um, um, an idea uh, that governments, publicly elected yeah. uh, officials, should drive investment. Mm. And for that, the key is to have uh, available uh, public institutions. Yeah. Is it also your... Uh, no, I, yes. You know, see, for me, um, the way we finance the transformation is going to be to source two, two kinds of finance. On the one hand, credit. You know, if, we, if you want to build a house or buy a house... You, you apply for credit. Uh, so either we draw on credit and on the financial system which creates credit, and I'm a, mm. strongly in favor of that because for me it's really important that we have the capacity to do that. Or we could draw on existing savings. All the public investment banks that we speak of mobilize existing savings, either through tax, through tax mm -hmm. revenues or by mobilizing uh, the savings of firms and individuals and governments. Um, and so they therefore, you know, in a sense are limited, the public investment banks, whereas the private banks, I mean, uh, the um, uh, Financial Stability Board suggests that out there in the stratosphere, there's something like $320 trillion worth of financial assets. Mm. In the shadow banking sector, it's something like $184 trillion of, of assets. Mm -hmm. So the private sector is mobilizing, creating and mobilizing trillions and trillions of dollars of assets, financial assets, whereas the public investment banks, if we're lucky, are in the, in the, in the realm of a billion dollars or in. Mm -hmm. And so these are, uh, so we need to use both. We need both the banking system to work and to use its powers to create the purchasing power we need to invest in alternative energy, transport and land use systems. But we also need to draw on existing savings, basically. But to just simply rely on existing savings in public investment banks or, or, you know, is, is to limit the financial the, the capacity to mm -hmm. finance this transformation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, how do you connect with the concept of the just transition? Uh, in the European Union now, the discussion is um, uh, predominantly framed um, under the umbrella of the just uh, transition. Yes. To connect the endeavor to tackle climate change yeah. with uh, a return to social justice. Yeah. 
Now, for me, this is incredibly important. And the reason why was because here in Britain, we had the experience of Margaret Thatcher and the coal mines, basically. And so what happened there was the, that coal miners were thrown out of their jobs and were abandoned and their communities were abandoned. And there was no process for retraining, upskilling and transferring those workers into newer industries. There was no alternative presented to the closures. I'm really impressed to see that Mrs. Merkel's uh, government has, mm -hmm. is closing down the nuclear uh, power stations, but also coal mines. Yesterday there was some announcement of 44 billion euros being used for that purpose. But uh, as far as I can see, included in that is the, is the financing needed for retraining and, and moving the workforce into, into new areas of, of uh, skills and so on. So for me, it is, we can't win this argument unless we have a just transition. And I, I want to say just this, um, you know, we've seen in France what happens when the government says, well, we can't move and we can't do anything about the climate until we tax you and take money out of your pocket. And only then can we spend. And this is a really wrong way of thinking about things. And I'm always, I'm always reminded by uh, Ken Livingston, the left-wing mayor of London, Ken Livingston wanted to introduce a congestion charge here, which was a tax on he cars did. in inner London, yes. and he did. And his advisor said to him, this is going to be very bad for your political career. You're going to be devastated by this. But what he did was, on the same day that he introduced the new tax, he put 300 new buses on the streets of London. And mm. so people coming into London could hop out of their cars onto a bus. And so there was no objection to this tax. So if we go about the process by first taxing the people but not providing an alternative um, first saying to people you're going to pay the tax but we don't care about your job in the future and we don't care whether this is just naturally we're going to have insurgencies against this and naturally we're going to have the gilet jaune in France so I want to see the state investing using the state's capacity to mobilize finance to build alternative transport energy and land use systems in the first instance, and then say to us, you, you, you can move into these spheres. And by the way, we'll also tax you and, 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 you know, we'll have to keep the show on the road, but not before. So this is why the just transition is so important and why we can't talk about it uh, in terms of taxing the people first and mm. then creating the alternative. The state has to build the alternative first. I'm glad you mentioned the Livingston example because... Yes. Uh, of course, now we focus on the bushfires in Australia yes. and what is happening uh, to the Amazon uh, forest in Brazil. Yes. Uh, but um, the cities in the industrialized world, yeah. in the rich countries, have to do a lot. And yes. uh, much of uh, the action has to take take place in yes. this uh, context. Yeah. Uh, for example, by reforming transport and providing the alternatives yeah and um and, and that probably also involves a huge amount of investment yeah. um is there a, a a good estimate of how much money would be needed in order to finance a transition like this well there are un and uh, world bank sponsored organizations who estimate that the amount of money needed to in particular help the low-income countries transform is in the region of 90 trillion dollars over 10 years mm -hmm. um, i think that's modest actually uh, given that uh, annual income global income is about 80 trillion dollars but the fact of the matter is that 
I don't think the problem is mobilizing the scale of finance. The problem we all face is how are we going to build the flood defenses? How are we going to retrofit our housing? How are we going to build uh, another? How how do we get started in alternative Mm -hmm. energy systems? And for me, the task of uh, retraining and skilling people up in order to do the work. And of course, that process you know, it takes long, to, you know, mm. it's making it shovel ready is what that's the way the economists talk about. That process of getting started on projects will take time. Mm. So that when we think about the amount of money that's needed, we need to spread it over time. And we'll need to find that while the number $90 trillion sounds like a huge amount, in the beginning, it will be a small amount, and then it'll grow with time. But mm. for me, the really important thing is this, is that the transformation has to be labor intensive. Um, whereas before we've used fossil fuel to drive our activities, we're now going to have to use labour to drive our activities. Um, you know, whereas in the past, Britain has imported our, our green beans from Kenya, drained the Kenyan water table, flown the green beans across, um, you know, in order to have them 24 hours a day, 365. Mm. This is no longer. We are going to have to grow our own green beans here in Britain. Mm. So for me, that's what, what how we need to think. But another important economic reason for that is that employment generates income and income generates tax revenues. Mm. And tax revenues can then be used to balance the books, basically, because Mm. everybody says, can we afford to do this? But if we have a labor-intensive program, Mm. we will be able to because income and tax revenues will then be generated. You know, if you have robots doing all this, um, they won't generate income and Mm. they won't generate tax revenues. And we will will fail to balance the books, basically, as well as having a very unjust transition. Yes, you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that... um, uh, young people are really motivated yes. to move ahead yes. and go for uh, the new lifestyle, the new ways of organizing the economy. Is this really a generational uh, question or it's more a political one? I think it is generational. Um, I think it's also political in the sense that power, as we've seen in our last, in our general election in December, power is in the hands of the elderly. Uh, who have been extraordinarily enriched by the post-financial crisis uh, um, concentration on monetary policy, which has enabled the, the values of assets to rise. Extraordinary. And the older uh, generation sit on assets that have become effortlessly, if you like, become mm. more valuable. And they exercise political power. So I don't think you can separate the political power question. But there's no question. I mean, my grandchildren are eight and 11 years old, and they are already very, very aware of the threat this poses to their futures. Mm. And I personally am disturbed by the fact that my, and they have been, I mean, a year ago they were uh, protesting. And when I watched my seven year old walk out with a banner, I, you know, it was heartbreaking. That's not what children should be thinking about. But that, the that's what is happening, and they mm-hmm. have an understanding that those who are locked into their safe assets and their wealth lack. They do have a point, but as you mentioned, the recent general elections in the UK, yeah. uh, when um, uh, the Labour Party was actually campaigning for a Green New Deal, yes. apparently uh, it didn't impress 
Yes. Why did it not impress? Well, I think that's because, you know, the Labour Party makes the mistake that many social democrats make. And I, for me, what comes what we come back to here is this really big question. Um, you know, whether we like it or not, uh, the Johnson government and the Trump administration and Bolsonaro, all of those people, are anti-globalization uh, in as vague a term as that, that might be. They are anti-globalization. Social Democrats across Europe and indeed in Britain have not been seen to be anti-globalization. And the Labour Party framed its Green New Deal in terms of we can spend all this money and we can pay for it through taxation. Uh, you know, we're going to tax the rich and we're going to tax the big corporations. And the problem is when you say that, people believe that actually you're talking about them. Mm. You might be, say you're talking about the 1%, but everybody thinks that one day I might be a member of the 1% mm -hmm. and I'd be paying more taxes. And people are not stupid. You know, they understand that, that this, is, this is not affordable. That, you know, why should they pay more when actually average incomes here in Britain, me, average median incomes here in Britain are below what they were before the crisis? People are, have been impoverished since the crisis and they've watched the 1% get rich richer and they're very angry and they're anti-globalization essentially and labor was was did not want to talk about the economy in international terms in terms mm -hmm. of the international nature of the global financial system it's not a a national system it's not a domesticated system if you like it's a globalized system and that didn't fit feature really in the debates around the labor party um But also it emphasized that everything had to be paid by taxes. And I think this is a wrong way to talk about this. If we were going to war tomorrow, nobody would go around with a tin and say, please, will you contribute towards the war? When we bailed out the banks in 2007 and 9, we didn't go around with a tin saying, put some taxpayers' money in here so yes. we can find a thousand billion pounds to bail out the financial system. We, we have a developed monetary system for the purposes of financing these large-scale investments. Uh, and the Labour didn't talk about that enough. I agree that the T-word, taxation, Yeah. at the time of a political campaign might be damaging uh, but the beaver because the alternative is borrowing yes yeah does and it sell yeah it sell? no the point is you know that the right have made borrowing a dirty word but money does not exist except when we borrow uh, you know money is created when i or you or a firm or a government applies for a loan mm -hmm. um, and You know, and so there's a misunderstanding of the nature of money and credit, certainly amongst the orthodox and certainly in, uh, on the right. The right are very happy to borrow. Uh, you know, the Trump administration is borrowing crazy, crazy money for tax breaks. Um, but basically, when, when the word borrowing is used, it's a way of attacking the role of the state in a mixed economy. And I think we have to defend the role of the state. We have to say, yes, of course. We're going to borrow. But the problem is if we just talk about borrowing and not about how the borrowing can be repaid, uh, then I think the, the public has a, has a right to be skeptical. But the fact is that if we do borrow, it must be invested in productive activity, which creates employment, which generates income, which generates tax revenues, which helps to repay the borrowing. And unless you explain to the public that that's the process... Uh, then I think they will always think that there's something wrong. Uh, well, they will always say, oh, you're just going to pile on the debt.
because mm. and the back, the books here at the moment that Britain's uh, budget is out of balance because of the financial crisis it's out of balance because we have although we have almost supposedly full employment we have very low incomes and people aren't paying taxes that's why the 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 the, uh, the, fin the public finances are out of sync uh, not because the state is spending too mm. much it's because the, the private sector, the, the real economy, is so weak. Mm. And the right won't argue that case, and the left hasn't argued that case, in my view, sufficiently mm -hmm. strongly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, recently, the European Commission came out with uh, a quite ambitious program. They call it a Green Deal. They don't yes. use the word Green New Deal, but they say it's a Green Deal. Yes. Is it a right perception that Europe is in the lead, if in a global comparison, in terms of creating a sustainable economy and um, and 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 if it is true uh, there is another question which is how far actually Europe can go ahead yes if others might be more reluctant yes without r risking yes. Um, economic uh, growth sustainability competitiveness and yes. so on. well I first of all I have to say that I I think it's exciting and really welcome that Europe is taking the lead here. The fact that we cannot rely on the United States or on China to take the lead is deeply disappointing. But it's wonderful and this is the power of the European Union and this is what we have to celebrate about the fact that states can combine in this way in order to exercise leadership. So I, I'm thrilled by that. Um, but I think there are two points. One, it's very telling that the word New Deal is left out. Because what is, what is, as I said earlier, what is key about it is the transformation of the financial system, which is necessary to make mm. it possible to finance this. But the other thing is that, as I understand it, Mrs. van der Leyen is uh, suggesting something like $1.2 trillion over 10 years, mm. which, in my view, is peanuts, really, mm. for this purpose. Because, um, as I understand it, Europe's GDP income per annum is $12 trillion, $12, $13 trillion. So this is 1% of one year's annual income spread over 10 years. And in other words, it's a 1% of 120 trillion, and that's tiny. So I, I think it lacks ambition. And, and it, when I look also at the way the sources of finance, it's uh, it's relying quite heavily on on the private sector and on Mr. Juncker's capital market plan for, to mm -hmm. raise the financing. And I, I don't think that can happen in this, this era of globalization. So financial globalization. So I think needs more thought and I think it needs more ambition. But I'm still really excited that Europe is leading and because I think geopolitics is changing and the United States is demanding to, to fall behind. You know, they insist on being the losers in this case. So Europe can lead by example. Of course. And I think, um, you know, as we watch the uh, Australian bushfires, this is going to this 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 is transforming politics as we speak. You know, yeah. as we are speaking here, we are watching a big change happen, and you know, the United States is the lagger. And but I come back to your point about the cities. You know, because what's happening in the U.S. in places like California and mm -hmm. so on, the cities are taking the lead. They're ignoring their president. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a way to lose, <laughs> if you like, to lose your role as as leader of your own country, never mind as leader of the world. So this is happening and, and I feel the drive is there and there are enough Americans behind this for this to support Europe's initiative in the long term. Right. So the, the direction is right and yes. then we just need to mobilize the adequate 
resources and yes. build the alliances with nation states or cities yes. which can be found around It's the globe. Exactly. That is the way forward. Thank you very much. Um, congratulations uh, to the book again, Anne, and thanks for your time. And um, let's hope we will see uh, in practice uh, much of uh, the things which we have been uh, discussing today. Thank you. That's wonderful. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned. <laughs>